0: This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification (MOC) points through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. Buprenorphine treatment. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now filling in for our moderator, Dr. Jim Allen. In
1: 2021, more than 106,000 Americans died from a drug overdose. That's more than died from motor vehicle accidents and firearm injuries combined. The drugs most commonly implicated are synthetic opioids such as fentanyl. The Appalachian states have the highest drug overdose rates and here in Ohio, we are close to the overdose epicenter. The cornerstone of treatment of opioid addiction has been the drug buprenorphine. However, buprenorphine is underused and opioid addiction is undertreated. To address this epidemic of overdose deaths, Congress included two major provisions in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. First, they eliminated the X waiver program. Now, in the past, if a physician wanted to prescribe buprenorphine, that physician needed to obtain an X waiver from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. To get an X waiver, a physician had to complete eight, eight hours of training in opioid use disorder treatment and then apply to the DEA. However, the process was cumbersome, and consequently, fewer than 5% of physicians obtained an X waiver. By eliminating the x waiver program, Congress removed a barrier to treating opioid use disorder by allowing any physician with a DEA number to prescribe buprenorphine. However, since most physicians have no experience in prescribing buprenorphine, Congress wanted to have some way to ensure that physicians learn about buprenorphine and other treatments for opioid use disorder. And so Congress included a second provision in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023 requiring that all physicians complete eight hours of continuing medical education in the treatment of opioid use disorder. The way this works is that every physician applying for a new or renewal DEA number must attest to completing the eight hours of education. Because DEA numbers are renewed on a rolling three-year basis, this means that every physician must complete the education before their next DEA number renewal. For some physicians, that means this year, and for others, it means two or three years from now. Today on MedNet, we're going to provide you with one of those eight hours of required training. And the good news is that if you've obtained CME credit in the past years for MedNet programs covering the treatment of opioid and other substance abuse disorders, those credit hours count also. Joining me today to discuss buprenorphine is Dr. Erin McKnight. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at the Ohio State University and is the medical director of the substance use treatment and recovery program at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And also Dr. Lucas McKnight, who is a hospitalist and assistant professor of internal medicine and pediatrics and also the associate program director of the internal medicine pediatrics residency program. Erin, Luke, Welcome. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Well, Aaron, when many people think of opioid use disorder, they think of someone who's in their 20s, who's destitute and living on the streets. Is that an accurate demographic?
2: That's a great question, Jim. And no, that is actually not an accurate demographic. It's important for everyone to recognize that opioid use disorder does not have a specific face to it. It can be an effect. It can affect anyone from any demographic, any race, any age, any gender. Um, It can affect people who um, have a high socioeconomic status, who have a low socioeconomic status. And so we can't really uh, pigeonhole anyone into a specific demographic, and we have to be on alert for it with every patient we see.
3: Well, Luke, what's the role of the hospitalist in treating opioid use disorder? I think that's a a great question, Jim, and um, as you mentioned, we are still in the middle of an opioid epidemic, so certainly uh, folks that get admitted to the hospital are a key demographic to continue to screen, identify opioid use disorder, discuss with them uh, your concerns about their opioid use, and then engage with them in potential treatment options and set them up for outpatient treatment if they're interested.
1: Well, thanks, Luke. For all of you viewing, you can watch all 120 of our current MedNet webcasts by going to ccme.osu.edu on your web browser. And if you prefer to get your continuing medical education by podcast, we've got one of those too. Just go to your podcast app and search OSU MedNet 21. Also, if you have questions about buprenorphine, you can email us by using the Ask a Question icon at the bottom of the MedNet webpage. Now let's get started with today's webcast. Erin?
2: Thank you, Jim. And so for my part of the presentation, I'm really going to focus on outpatient clinical considerations for medications for opioid use disorder, of which buprenorphine is one of three that we can utilize. The objectives for this part of the presentation are to discuss the change in the opioid epidemic with the emergence of high-potency synthetic opioids, to understand the difference between the three medications utilized to treat opioid use disorder as well as their clinical indications, to learn outpatient initiation strategies for buprenorphine, to identify precipitated withdrawal and ways to address patient discomfort if this were to happen, and then to understand stabilization and long-term treatment with buprenorphine. I have no conflicts to disclose. So first off, let's discuss the opioid epidemic. And we're actually in the fourth phase of the opioid epidemic right now, if you can believe that. So really, the opioid epidemic started back when we um, really were seeing the emergence of the abuse of prescription opioid pills. There was an abundance of prescription opioids that were out there from pill mills and from the overprescribing of opioids such as Oxycontin, as well as Percocet, Vicodin. Uh, That then changed to the second phase of the epidemic where we saw a lot more of the emergence of black tar heroin. It was much cheaper. It was easier for people to get, especially as we started to decrease the amount of prescriptions opioids prescribed. However, as we then started to move into uh, around 2015, 2016, we saw the emergence of high-potency synthetic opioids. Um, And these are... uh, opioids similar to fentanyl and its analogs. And this is not like fentanyl that one might be accustomed to uh, from a fentanyl patch or something like that. This is fentanyl that's being made in a laboratory and then it's being added to other substances or sold as its own substance. On the street, people can call this white china. Um, We saw the emergence of fentanyl being added into heroin starting around 2015-2016 and saw an increase in overdose deaths at that point in time. Now, Fentanyl is the primary drug source on the market and we're actually seeing a fourth wave where fentanyl is now being laced into other substances for people who are not even seeking out opioids and who are seeking out other substances such as cocaine and methamphetamine and are having overdose deaths because of the fentanyl laced within those substances. So this increase in high-potency synthetic opioids has really coincided, like I mentioned, with an increase in overdose deaths. We're also seeing other components happening within the drug supply with fentanyl, and then we're seeing a high prevalence of polysubstance use, specifically with that stimulant use that I mentioned, like cocaine and methamphetamine use. Therefore, there's an even greater need to expand access to medications for opioid use disorder. So what is fentanyl? What is this high-potency synthetic opioid, and why is it so different? And so this synthetic fentanyl that we're seeing right now is different from other opioids such as um, morphine, Percocet, Vicodin, um, hydrocodone, heroin, and the fact that it is very lipophilic. And so there's also much needed, there's a very small dose that's needed for an effect to happen in the body. And then when you take fentanyl, because it's lipophilic, it stores in the fat cells and it accumulates over time. And so when it is stopped, it still lingers in the body and then it is slow to dissipate. And then that half-life can actually approximate the half-life of methadone. So gone are the days where someone said they utilized heroin 12 hours ago and then they are having really significant withdrawal. This can start um, to have a much longer effect from when someone last used fentanyl to when they start to experience withdrawal and when you can start to use medications for opioid use disorder. It's very important to understand that medication treatment for opioid use disorder is the gold standard for treatment of opioid use disorder and there is much evidence to support this. The American Society of Addiction Medicine recommends medication for opioid use disorder as a standard of care. In fact, previous quote-unquote detoxification treatment where someone would go in and just be weaned off of an opioid and given withdrawal meds is really not a treatment method for opioid use disorder and is not recommended. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, recognizes that addiction is a chronic, treatable disease. The science demonstrating the effectiveness of medications for opioid use disorder is strong and it is not sound medical practice to deny people with this life-threatening disease access to FDA-approved medications for their illness. So what are the role of medications in the treatment of opioid use disorder? One, it can eliminate, withdraw, and help people feel better. Two, it can diminish or eliminate drug craving and the use of illicit opioids and help people live their lives without constantly thinking about trying to use an opioid. It can help them go to school, go to work. It can help them go to behavioral health treatment programs to get other skills to help them treat their addiction. It blocks or attenuates the effects of fentanyl and other abused opioids by binding very tightly to the opioid mu receptor in the body and not letting other opioids bind. In that instance, it's also very helpful from a risk-harm reduction standpoint by reducing overdose risk, because if this medication is bound tightly to that opioid mu receptor, nothing else can bind and risk overdose. We also see with these medications increased treatment retention, as well as engagement in comprehensive rehabilitation services. There is decreased medical and psychiatric symptoms, improves health, reduces the risk of communicable disease like HIV and hepatitis C. It very much improves social determinants, such as employment, family relations, and can decrease criminal behavior. So when we talk about opioid use disorder treatment, um, I'm going to mention the three medications people can use, and then we'll focus mostly on buprenorphine. So methadone, which is one that's been around the longest, is a full agonist at your opioid mu receptor. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist, and what we'll go into a little bit more in depth. And then naltrexone is a full antagonist at the opioid mu receptor. So methadone, briefly, you see peak levels at two to four hours. This can sustain for about 24 hours. Um, Half-life can range anywhere from four to 91 hours, actually. This is giving daily dosing. You can actually divide it for some increased analgesia benefits. The benefits of this are it can give some pain relief. It's very effective. It's done in a very structured environment. And there's no risk of precipitated withdrawal when starting someone on methadone, regardless of the opioid they were using previously. There are a lot of disadvantages though to methadone. One is that you can have typical opioid side effects like constipation, sedation. There's a lot of drug-drug interactions with methadone that um, people have to be aware of. And then you can see EKG changes at a higher dose. Now specifically when we're looking at methadone from an outpatient perspective, you really can only get methadone from an outpatient standpoint at a federally sanctioned opioid treatment program. And this can be a barrier to someone getting this medicine from an outpatient standpoint. This requires daily visits for dosing. So unfortunately, you cannot prescribe this at hospital discharge, and this can pose difficulties with discharge planning, or for people who live in really rural settings, if there's not an OTP anywhere around them, it can make it difficult for them to go daily to get their medication. So buprenorphine, on the other hand, can be a lot better from an outpatient perspective. This medicine specifically, like I mentioned, is a partial agonist at that opioid mu receptor and has an onset of action within 30 to 60 minutes. Usually reach your peak effect 90 to 100 minutes after taking it, and it has a half-life of about 24 to 42 hours. We can give this in daily or BID oral dosing. Most patients actually prefer it in this BID oral dosing. However, there is also a monthly injection that is available. The benefits to buprenorphine, um, because it is a partial agonist, you have a ceiling effect to sedation and respiratory depression. So unless someone is concurrently using it with benzodiazepines or alcohol, there's really not a risk for respiratory depression as there can be with methadone. There's more options for outpatient therapy compared to methadone. And it also can allow treatment of comorbid pain as buprenorphine can be used from a pain standpoint. The disadvantages, this can precipitate withdrawal if you give it too quickly after someone has used um, an opioid. This also, when in the use of fentanyl, requires a fentanyl washout period of a longer period of time compared to methadone. Also, you can see some alterations in the LFTs, so you need to consider a dose reduction or transitioning to just the mono form of buprenorphine instead of buprenorphine naloxone um, if the LFTs are greater than three times the upper limit of normal. Uh, as Jim mentioned earlier, there have been recent changes regarding the prescribing of buprenorphine. So we no longer have to have an X-waiver training um, uh, that was required prior in order to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, and even in the meantime, prior to us removing the full X-waiver, there used to be a period of time um, during the COVID pandemic where you, had to, you could prescribe, but you had to have a notice of intent uh, that you gave to SAMHSA. You no longer have to do that either, for those of you who were used to um, having to do that before to prescribe. Uh, Again, you have to fulfill those eight-hour requirements if you're a new DEA registrant on substance use disorder training to really understand potentially how to use buprenorphine to help these patients. So specifically treatment of opioid use disorder with buprenorphine, um, we know that there's a lot of research showing benefits for patients with opioid use disorder. However, there's still a lot of resistance remaining, uh, and that is really precluding people having access to this life-saving medication. So I'm briefly going to touch on what the current treatment is and then also look at what recent research shows regarding buprenorphine initiation in the age of these new high-synthetic opioids um, and discuss high-dose initiation, which some might call macrodosing, as well as low-dose initiation with the continuation of an opioid agonist, which people consider microdosing. So standard initiation practices from a buprenorphine standpoint, for those who maybe have utilized it before, um, was something that we used when someone was using heroin or prescription opioids, so not these high-potency synthetic opioids. Uh, So this was really what those first classes from a buprenorphine standpoint uh, were giving us education on and what we were using initially. So we found that patients needed to be in a moderate opioid withdrawal to start taking that medication. Um, And we would use adjuvant medications like Clonidine or Zofrin in order to help with withdrawal. The initial dose for standard initiation was around two to eight milligrams. And then uh, the duration of initiation of this was about one to three days until they were usually stable on a maintenance dose. You did not have to continue any full agonist when initiating buprenorphine at that time. And moderate care coordination was required and it could easily be done on an outpatient basis. So this was what a standard initiation in any outpatient treatment setting might have looked like. So your daily dosing strategy would have started on day one, two to four milligrams as your starting dose and then getting up to about eight to 12 milligrams that day. Day two, you could be anywhere between four to 16 milligrams based on what it needed to help somebody keep them, um, their withdrawal symptoms at bay as well as their opioid cravings at bay as well as uh, day three, figuring out between four to 24 milligrams where someone needed to be. However, In the age of fentanyl and it being lipophilic, it has distribution to the peripheral tissues that is not dose-dependent. This continues and prolonged use of fentanyl can result in an increased volume of distribution systemically with slow dissipation overall. And then when you take uh, buprenorphine within the standard practice like we used to give, it is much more likely to uh, induce precipitated withdrawal than it was in the past. And so what does that mean? Precipitated withdrawal during buprenorphine initiation can really be a barrier to successful initiation and stabilization. Patients are afraid of that. Patients maybe have taken buprenorphine on the street and this has happened to them before and they felt really sick and they don't want that to happen again. Well, what is precipitated withdrawal? So I mentioned before that buprenorphine has a higher affinity for the mu receptor when it's given. So when most of the receptors are still occupied by a full agonist, this buprenorphine will go and displace the full agonist, causing withdrawal symptoms, because you don't have that full activation of all of those mu receptors. So you need to discuss expectations with your patient, what the setting for initiation is going to look like, and what treatment for precipitated withdrawal will look like before you start initiation to help them feel comfortable. So what is the treatment for precipitated withdrawal? Well someone's knee-jerk reaction might be to just stop the buprenorphine, but it's opposite of that. Actually, the most effective treatment is to give more buprenorphine if someone is in precipitated withdrawal. There have been studies that show improvements in symptoms with rapid escalation to 24 to 32 milligrams on that day of initiation. And what happens is as you have more of those mu opioid receptors that are bound with buprenorphine, the agonism of that medication is optimized and people start to feel better. You can also use um, alpha-2 agonists and symptom-directed adjunctive medications in order to help through that phase. However, know that sometimes intractable withdrawal can happen, and that one that doesn't respond to those above interventions, outpatient of giving more buprenorphine as well as those adjunctive medications may require hospital-level interventions for a higher titration of the buprenorphine. So what's one strategy that we can utilize that's different than standard initiation outpatient? And that is high dose buprenorphine initiation. So this can be done to quickly stabilize a patient. To start off with, someone needs to be in at least mild withdrawal, so that would be about a cow's score greater than eight. And when you do this, you see we start off at much higher doses than that 2 to 8 that I originally mentioned. We're going to start off at 8 to 16 or higher milligrams, and we're going to escalate very rapidly to 16 to 32 milligrams and 1 to 2 doses on that first day. That duration of initiation until someone is stabilized is about two hours. You do not continue any full agonist opioid when you're doing this, and moderate care coordination is required. Um, This can be done outpatient with the caveat that it's going to potentially have someone stay in your office in order to do this, or with very uh, careful instructions, phone calls, very close follow-up from an outpatient standpoint. This is also utilized in the emergency department and in urgent care settings. So when we see um, increasing this initial dose of suboxone or buprenorphine greater than 8 milligrams, that results in this increasing agonist mu receptor activation, and it strengthens that opioid blockade. Studies show um, a prospective cohort of ER patients with fentanyl use actually had precipitated withdrawal less than 1% of the time after receiving this initial high-dose strategy. And there's also further studies that show no increased adverse events compared with standard initiation when someone was given high-dose buprenorphine initiation. So once again, this can be done in any treatment strategy. Your daily dosing strategy would be on day one. Really get up high to 8 to 24 milligrams at that initial dose. And then you can give doses of up to 8 to 24 milligrams administered every 30 to 60 minutes with initial observation. Days one to two, patients are most likely going to be on greater than or equal to 24 milligrams of buprenorphine on those days, some up to 32. So then there's microdosing or low dose buprenorphine initiation with opioid continuation. And so what happens with this is you're actually going to have a patient use a full agonist opioid during a multi-day dose escalation of low dose buprenorphine. Sometimes patients feel more comfortable doing this, um, it doesn't seem as scary as going on with big high doses, of, so it could be beneficial for some patients. By continuing that full agonist, you are going to maintain the level of mu opioid receptor activation needed to match that patient's baseline opioid tolerance. In a hospital or ER setting, you can actually prescribe a full agonist opioid for that protocol. However, in an outpatient setting, we're not able to do that. You can't, you can't prescribe a full agonist opioid for treating opioid use disorder. Federal law says we can't do that. However. If you do have someone with chronic pain, you can prescribe a full agonist to opioid use disorder patients with pain, and go ahead and utilize that for a low-dose protocol. Or some providers have started using having their patient use their own non-prescribed opioid doing buprenorphine dose escalation, and then having them stop it when they reach a certain dose. That can feel uncomfortable to some providers to say, continue to use your fentanyl while we're doing this and then stop it, but that's a way that we're able to do low dose from an outpatient standpoint. So there's a variety of strategies to use that, actually, Luke will talk about later, Um, and we know that there's really no specific dosing schedule for either a full agonist opioid or buprenorphine that has been determined. This is stuff that people are still working on and figuring out what works best for them and what works best for their patient. So it's very individualized. Most of these cases occur in a hospital setting, so you can prescribe that full-dose agonist. And this is really great for patients with pain who are transitioning from full agonist to buprenorphine, patients admitted to the hospital, as well as patients enrolled in an opioid treatment program who are transitioning from methadone to buprenorphine. So once someone is no longer experiencing withdrawal and they have minimal to no opioid cravings, that's when you've reached stabilization. Long-term treatment after stabilization is recommended as long as the patient benefits. This is really patient-driven, not provider-driven, and patients can be on this for a lifetime, and that is fine. Individuals that use synthetic opioids may actually have more difficulty achieving stabilization now, and they may require higher doses than we were used to. Uh, Previously, when people were mostly using heroin, we would see a daily dose average of about 16 milligrams daily. With these higher synthetic opioids, we're seeing around 24 to 32 milligrams daily that people need to stabilize on. Another way to help someone stabilize is to use extended-release buprenorphine, which is a depot formulation. Um, And this is a shot that's given monthly, and this can help for people who want to decrease visits, concern for diversion, or who need a greater ability to adhere to treatment. Um, and we found at highest doses that sublocate dose, which is the trade name for one of the buprenorphine injections, can achieve similar or higher buprenorphine plasma levels for about 24 milligrams daily, which is really helpful for people with uh, fentanyl use. And compare, compared with singlingual buprenorphine, the extended release has shown reduction in opioid use and overdose. So what about other medications for opioid use? So we know that all medications for opioid use should be available to all patients, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. So when choosing, you need to consider a patient's preference, their past treatment history, as well as their current state of illness. And while many may prefer, prefer buprenorphine or think that it's going to be the best for them, repeated unsuccessful initiation and stabilization attempts may require other options, and they should be offered to someone. For that, methadone is actually the first-line treatment alternative, and they need to go to an opioid treatment program for that. So naltrexone, just briefly to mention, is that full antagonist. There is an initiation challenge for those with extensive fentanyl use. Because of that prolonged elimination, you have to have a much longer opioid-free interval to start. If you start naltrexone too soon, you will precipitate, withdrawal and have someone be really sick. Because of that, you have a much higher risk of overdose when somebody is trying to stop using and not using within the time to get to naltrexone. And if someone stops taking the naltrexone or as it can be an injectable medication, if they miss their injection, they're at higher risk of overdose. Individuals using fentanyl are much less likely to initiate extended release naltrexone than buprenorphine or methadone. However, if someone is highly motivated, you can transition them onto that in a controlled environment. In addition to prescribing medication for opioid use, you always need to prescribe naloxone, which is an intranasal um, rescue medication for those who might have overdosed on the uh, utilizing any sort of synthetic opioid and reassess if need more. Also consider fentanyl test strips for people who are potentially using cocaine or methamphetamine or who are buying uh, pills off of the internet that, 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 that might be laced.
1: Well, thanks, Aaron. Buprenorphine is available both as a single drug and also in combination with naloxone under, for example, the brand name Suboxone. When would you use the combination as opposed to buprenorphine alone?
2: That's a great question. And so, when we first started utilizing buprenorphine as a medication to treat opioid use disorder, it was just in that mono form, um, and the trade name for that was Subutex. However, what some were finding was that someone could actually crush up the Subutex, crush up that mono buprenorphine form, and utilize it to get some small benefit of a euphoric feeling or a high from that standpoint. And so, the naloxone component was added to buprenorphine in order to help with the misuse of that medication and the diversion of the medication. So the way buprenorphine naloxone is given is sublingually, either in a tablet form or in um, a film form. And if someone were to try to misuse that medication or take it differently than a sublingually, uh, the naloxone component would activate and someone would not get any benefit from the medication. We find that most commonly people are utilizing buprenorphine naloxone as the medication to prescribe. There are some instances, specifically in pregnant women or based off of the formulation you might have available to you in a hospital setting where the monobuprenorphine form is uh, utilized. However, from an outpatient standpoint, by and large, it is the buprenorphine naloxone form used.
1: When starting an outpatient on buprenorphine, how often do you have them come into the office?
2: That's a great question, and it all depends on the individual, their support network that they have from an outpatient standpoint, as well as how you're initiating the medication. Um, So someone who you're doing that high-dose initiation on, you want really close follow-up. Sometimes that might even be having the patient come in the next day. If they have really good support at home and a really good network at home, it could be a phone call the next day to see how someone is doing and utilizing some phone management from that standpoint. standpoint, telehealth is also a great option in order to have somebody utilize telehealth in order to talk with them about that. We really see people very closely within those first um, weeks of initiation as well as getting to stabilization, and so really figuring out with you and your patient how close that will be is all dependent on on how they're doing in your comfort level as well.
1: Well, thanks, Erin. For the second part of today's webcast, we're going to take a look at initiating treatment in the inpatient setting. Luke?
3: Thanks, Jim, and thanks for having us. (laughs) Um, So some objectives to discuss here, uh, acknowledging the need for inpatient initiation of buprenorphine, discussing various low-dose buprenorphine initiation strategies, understanding the use of high-dose buprenorphine initiation protocol in the inpatient setting, so that would also be known as macrodosing, and then discussing the use of methadone as a potential alternative if buprenorphine um, is unable to be used for any number of reasons. I do not have any significant conflicts of interest to disclose. Um, So thinking about uh, specific inpatient initiation considerations and certain patient populations that we see in the hospital, you may come across patients that are admitted for medical complications but then have uh, opioid withdrawal occurring at the same time. And so it can be helpful to help treat the patient for their opioid uh, withdrawal um, to help them be adherent to the treatment plan while they're with you in the hospital. Uh, patients that have opioid use disorder, they're on uh, full agonist for pain control, may want to transition to a maintenance uh, uh, program for their opioid use dis- uh, disorder. So transitioning to them to buprenorphine instead of their full agonist oxycodone, for example. And then patients wanting to initiate treatment uh, for their fentanyl use or their uh, opioid use disorder while they're in the in the hospital, you know, you have a ca- captive audience, so it would be a good time to uh, think about. Uh, starting them on treatment while they're in the hospital with you. Uh, So thinking about uh, how we uh, treat our inpatients and the general guidelines that we use uh, while patients are hospitalized, so you want to screen patients for potential opioid use disorder and identify them. Uh, we use the DSM-5 criteria to uh, quantify their opioid their potential opioid use disorder. Checking at an ORS or the Ohio Automated Prescription Reporting System is important to understand if they've been prescribed any opioids in the outpatient setting uh, from a medical pr- provider, and then quantifying and documenting their opioid use. Which opioids do they use? Uh, how often are they using them? Uh, what uh, what is the duration um, of their use, when was their last use, and then uh, what method do they use uh, uh, to administer themselves their opioids. We tend to check some routine lab work, including urine toxicology, toxicology, um, liver function testing, uh, knowing their pregnancy status, and then obviously folks especially that inject are high risk of others, uh, bloodstream infections, HIV, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, hepatitis B and C, and syphilis. Uh, we obtain a clinical opioid withdrawal sc- uh, scale uh, score on all of our patients to understand the level of opioid withdrawal they may be experiencing, <clears throat> and then uh, it's important to consider adjunctive medications for symptom control, uh, which are discussed here. So, uh, any or all of these medications may be helpful to you to utilize for your patients as you try to get them through the withdrawal period. Just pointing out a few that uh, I've seen to be particularly helpful: clonidine, cl- sorry, clonidine. Um, and then uh, Zofran and then hydroxyzine tend to have some decent success in mitigation of opioid withdrawal symptoms for some of our patients. Uh, So thinking about how we initiate buprenorphine at at OSU, this is a flow chart which is available for reference, but I just wanted to highlight a few uh, areas that are on this slide. So the first one is in the top left. Uh, you know, the thought is that if they haven't had any documented opioid use in the last five days, you're probably safe to start buprenorphine, uh, and have less risk of precipitated withdrawal. Uh, so then the next step would be to, um, get your opioid, uh, your cow score, your clinical opioid withdrawal scale score and, and see how much opioid withdrawal they're in. And then depending on what that result is, starting anywhere between four and eight milligrams Uh, of of suboxone or buprenorphine naloxone uh, sublingual formulation if that's what you're deciding to use. And then uh, repeating the dose uh, so that you get them through the withdrawal period and get them uh, on a maintenance dose that um, is satisfactory to them to uh, try to mitigate their cravings and try to curb future use. Uh, we've seen in the current setting with fentanyl use that anywhere between 16 and usually 24 milligrams of daily buprenorphine dosing is, uh, is what you may consider the sweet spot for how much uh, buprenorphine they may need uh, in the outpatient setting or once, once you uh, have them on maintenance dosing. So I thought it might be helpful to go through a few clinical cases, you know, uh, cases that you may see in the hospital commonly, or at least I have. So our first patient is a 36-year-old who was originally introduced to opioids through a prescription for acute pain and has had since continued increasing uh, doses of opioid through prescriptions and also um, using uh, family members' medications by taking uh, some of their oxycodone from the medication cabinet. Um, they have now presented to the hospital because they're not feeling well, they're having fevers and chills, and they state that their last use of opioid was about 12 hours ago. Uh, upon admission, they seem uncomfortable. You discuss with them your concerns about their fevers but before you're done with the interview, they ask how long their stay will be and uh, ask when they could uh, leave, potentially because they're not feeling well and maybe are thinking about going home to use more opioids. You get a COV score on admission and it's 21, so they're in a fairly significant, uh, clinically significant withdrawal. So what are our possible next steps? Well, uh, one strategy is you could try to get them through this hospital admission using symptom control, so medications from that uh, chart a few uh, slides ago, uh, maybe using (coughs) hydroxyzine, clonidine, et cetera. Some Zofran. Another strategy uh, would be to uh, use kind of a harm reduction strategy and just treat them with full dose, full agonist uh, opioids like oxycodone to kind of mitigate some of their withdrawal symptoms, uh, and uh, but at least get them feeling good enough from their withdrawal so they can participate in the rest of their medical treatment. And then the third strategy, which uh, many may seem, uh, may uh, consider superior, would be discuss with them and actually initiate them on buprenorphine while they're in the hospital. So you discuss those three strategies, and they uh, pick the buprenorphine option. Uh, So you give them an 8-milligram sublingual dose and repeat uh, their cow scores, and you you see that their clinical uh, opioid uh, withdrawal score, their cow score, is significantly improved. So that's great. They're feeling better. You've started them on buprenorphine. Then social work meets with them uh, to discuss uh, discharge plans and and plans for outpatient uh, follow-up. Case number two, we have our same patient, same problem, but this time, instead of using uh, medical uh, prescription opioids, they have been uh, obtaining their opioids off the street because they're cheaper and they don't have a, an ability to, to obtain their opioids anywhere else. Uh, they're, again, uncomfortable. It's 12 hours since their last use, um, and um, they have clinically significant withdrawal on admission. You discuss with them all the options, and they, agree again, uh, decide to proceed with the buprenorphine initiation strategy well, except this time you you give them the buprenorphine and they actually feel much worse their cow score shoots up uh, to let's say thirty uh, from the uh, twenty that they were uh, at previously uh, and uh, things are worse, not better so what uh what happened well um, it seems that uh, you know since they were using fentanyl, it had only been twelve hours since their last use you precipitated their opioid withdrawal and made it a little bit worse and so uh, we'll discuss uh, kind of how this happens. you know as mentioned, fentanyl is the predominant opioid that's uh, available uh, on the street uh, and no matter what uh, opioid a patient thinks they may be trying to buy, for example their say, so, no, this is Percocet or this is uh, Oxycodone or Vicodin, if it's not from a pharmacy or medical prescription, it's safe to ins- assume that the uh, primary opioid that they're using is fentanyl. Um, and so, and that's the reason in this case that the, uh, the patient experienced precipitated withdrawal, their, um, uh, their opioid that they're using was fentanyl. And so, um, A couple of things about uh, your urine uh, drug screen if it's a point of care testing often that doesn't include fentanyl so just because it's negative for opioids uh, it may miss the fact that the patient has fentanyl in their system so you need to know what uh, laboratory uh, testing strategy your lab is using and and if whether or not it detects fentanyl in general if it's a uh, gas chromatography mass spectrometry uh, (coughs) test which is the one that we use uh, at OSU, that should detect fentanyl or fentanyl metabolites like norfentanyl. Um, Now we'll talk about uh, microdosing uh, or low-dose initiation. And so uh, in patients that uh, have used fentanyl recently or um, in patients that are continuing on full agonist for pain or in patients that are currently on methadone but desire to switch to buprenorphine formulation, um, you may decide to Uh, to use a microdosing or low dosing strategy to initiate them on buprenorphine safely while trying to minimize their risk of precipitated withdrawal. And so this method is called the Bernice Method. It was first described in 2010 by Dr. Hammig at Bern University. Um, And they had noticed that some of their patients were uh, experiencing withdrawal while they were doing their standard opioid uh, induction. Uh, They also noted, though, that some patients that were on buprenorphine were using full-dose agonists without negative effect, and so uh, they proposed, uh, hypothesized, that uh, small doses uh, at escalating doses could be an effective way to get people uh, on their buprenorphine uh, safely and without precipitated withdrawal. Um, And so this method uh, classically started with 0.2 milligrams, which is a very small dose of buprenorphine, but while continuing their full uh, agonist. uh, So maybe they're on methadone, maybe they're on oxycodone, or maybe they were on heroin at the time. Um, And then you slowly increase the dose day by day. And once you're at a sufficient dose that's high enough, which we'll discuss in in the next few slides, you're able to stop the full dose agonist, continue the buprenorphine. Uh, They don't uh, experience withdrawal symptoms and then they're able to kind of feel better and get on what's gonna be their maintenance dosing for their buprenorphine. So um, there are different ways to uh, do low-dose initiation depending on what um, is available in your pharmacy or on your formulary. So buprenorphine comes in a sublingual film. Uh, It also comes in a transdermal patch or a buccal formulation, um, which may be a little bit more expensive, but comes in very small doses, so it can be uh, highly effective for the low-dose initiation strategy if it's available to you. So next I'm going to go through several uh, low-dose buprenorphine initiation strategies depending on what kind of, uh, you know, buprenorphine formulation is available to you, this first one. And so these are more for reference, but just kind of point out the different ways that you can obtain the same result, which is to get them on their maintenance dose of buprenorphine. So. The first one, you start with a 0.5 milligram sublingual film while continuing their full agonist. On day two, you increase the dose to one milligram every three hours while continuing their full agonist. And then on day three, you're up to 8 to uh, 16 milligrams of sublingual dosing uh, with your dose increase. And then at the end of the day, you can stop um, You can stop the full agonist. So that would, that's a rapid rep- approach that... Um, hopefully decreases their risk of precipitated withdrawal, but uh, fairly quickly gets them up on their appropriate maintenance dose of of buprenorphine. Um, This next method is also a rapid approach, but uses a um, buprenorphine transdermal patch uh, at the start. So you keep the patch on the whole time, but then add in escalating doses of sublingual buprenorphine until you're at uh, day four, at which time you can stop the full agonist um, and uh, transition them to the, your maintenance dosing for your buprenorphine. <clears throat> uh, this next strategy is kind of a more s- what I would consider standard or historically what we've used more commonly for our low dose initiation protocol. This one's using Belbuca or uh, buccal buprenorphine, uh, and so you use 225 micrograms, which is a very small dose, and then you increase the dose. Uh, until you're on day four when you transition from the buccal formulation to the sublingual buprenorphine formulation, and then uh, on day seven, you're able to stop the full agonist. Uh, so you have them on oxycodone, or this would also work uh, if their full agonist was methadone, you'd be able to stop the methadone on day seven. Uh, here's another uh, kind of uh, slower, low-dose microdosing approach. Um, this one's using a sublingual, um, a sublingual patch, so you continue that. Uh, you start the sublingual patch on day one, uh, and then, um, sorry, this one actually is the sublingual film. You start the sublingual film on day one, and then you escalate the the dose uh, up until you are at day seven, and you, again you can stop your um, you can stop your full agonist at that time. Now, note that the sublingual film may or may not come in that 0.5 milligram formulation, so this may invo- involve kind of cutting or slicing the, um, the film so that you're able to get the appropriate dose. <coughs> uh, now, here, we'll talk about our um, high-dose protocol, so that's also known as dosing. So let's say, okay, that sounds great, but three days. I don't have three days in the hospital. I certainly don't have seven days, so how do I get patients rapidly uh, it started on buprenorphine safely um, so that they're able to get on their maintenance dose and hopefully curb their uh, fentanyl or their illicit opioid use. Well, you can use this protocol. Um, so you, again, <clears throat> you get, get an initial COW score and um, it's important to note that you need at least 12 hours from their last use and the longer, uh, the longer period of time, the better as far as decreasing the chances of uh, causing precipitated withdrawal. Um, so once it's been at least 12 hours, uh, you assess a cow score, and if it's um, sufficiently high, then you start with 4 to 8 milligrams of sublingual um, buprenorphine, you reassess 30 to 60 minutes later, and then at that time, most likely, they'll need some more. And so you keep repeating that every 30 to 60 minutes with 8 milligrams of buprenorphine dosing um, until you're at their maintenance dose, which is likely 24 milligrams or so. Um, this this uh, method can be a little bit rocky at times. You can see because um, you know it hasn't been a whole long a whole uh, long period of time since they've used their fentanyl, and uh, you're trying to rapidly get their buprenorphine on board. Um, but uh, in an emergency setting, uh, it may uh, be your best strategy to trying to get them uh, you know started on their opioid treatment with buprenorphine. Um, at this point. We'll talk just briefly about methadone, and so uh, because of all the the new fentanyl and the real, real, the very real risk of precipitated withdrawal, uh, many folks are adverse to using uh, buprenorphine for whatever reason. And so you certainly can do your due diligence and uh, try to discuss what happened and and what uh, why we may have more success with buprenorphine this time. But s- some individuals are just not ready to commit to doing more buprenorphine. And so methadone may become uh, your next option for how to get them treatment for their opioid use disorder. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, patients that are on uh, using fentanyl uh, as their opioid of choice uh, tend to need m- closer monitoring, uh, more use of adjunctive medications, and um, faster up titration of the, of the methadone. Um, and then the other thing, which we'll talk about in another slide or two, is the... Uh, the challenges with outpatient uh, opioid treatment programs specifically or methadone clinics and what that uh, entails as far as discharge planning and then patient willingness to uh, go seek their uh, methadone uh, daily at, uh, at a methadone clinic. So um, this is on our uh, uh, clinical uh, practice guidelines uh, but is uh, I think pretty standard across the country at this point thinking about methadone. Um, so. With any medication, there are some relative contraindications. So, you think about methadone. Um, you know, may uh, at higher doses may decrease the respiratory drive. So, if they have morbid obesity, sleep apnea, uh, obesity's hypoventilation, COPD, uh, etc., you may want to use caution with methadone uh, just to make sure they can tolerate it. And then, uh, absolute co- contraindications to methadone would be a true methadone allergy or if they have. Uh, acute liver failure, you'd want to hold off on on starting methadone at that time. Um, So methadone cannot be prescribed legally for uh, this diagnosis of opioid use disorder at hospital discharge. So patients need to have a follow-up at a federally sanctioned opioid treatment program to get their maintenance dosing in the outpatient setting. So involving the social work team, and finding out if that's going to be an option for the patient uh, ideally before starting methadone is probably your best option so that you don't start the methadone and then figure out they don't have any uh, strategies to continue the meth- methadone once they leave the hospital. Um, as we, as Dr. Aaron McKnight mentioned, it you know has a long half-life um, and uh, uh, so you need to be careful with up titration. Now historically uh, And legally, really, you can only start uh, methadone at 30 milligrams daily on the first day. Um, And then uh, the prior uh, dogma has been, you know, reassess every two to three days because that's the uh, typical half-life, and then assess for uh, up-titration at that point. Um, We know uh, that current uh, regular fentanyl users um, tend to have a very high opioid tolerance, and so... um, a typical dose needed to treat patients with uh, fentanyl as their opioid of choice for their opioid use disorder can be 150 milligrams up to 200 milligrams. So you can see there's a big gap between 30 milligrams and their ultimate likely dose, which is 150 milligrams. So there's been some movement in the community lately to increase their methadone more rapidly to try to uh, get them through the withdrawal period. the other thing is you know, you'll know, you have to strongly consider using additional adjunctive medications because uh, they likely will be in clinically significant withdrawal for several days, if not a week or more, while you're titrating up the methadone. And so um, using uh, hydroxazine, using clonidine, using Zofran, and then um, maybe even considering using some full agonist opioids to help mitigate the, that withdrawal so that they're able to uh, complete their methadone induction Um, I think those would be important things to consider. Um, Some additional clinical considerations. um, Certain formulations of buprenorphine, uh, uh, particular Subutex, uh, or if it's something else besides your traditional Suboxone, uh, may require prior authorization. Uh, These are becoming easier to obtain, but still need to be done. So involving your inpatient pharmacy team and involving uh, your social worker early, uh, to uh, see whether a patient needs, um, you know, needs a prior authorization to continue whatever buprenorphine formulation uh, that you start for them is important. So obviously, if you prescribe buprenorphine, you want them to be able to continue it when they leave the hospital. Uh, As mentioned, every patient with opioid use disorder, whether or not they're on treatment or not, should be prescribed intranasal naloxone. It's a life-saving medication that that can uh, prevent uh, death and toxicity due to uh, opioid overdose. And every new patient should have uh, follow-up with a social worker, uh, sorry, uh, should have follow-up with a treatment program within seven days. So it's important to utilize the social work team uh, to make sure that uh, that's able to be accomplished for your patient, ideally before they discharge from the hospital.
1: Well, thanks, Luke. You know, patients aren't always forthcoming about opioid use. When should we suspect uh, opioid use disorder in patients being admitted for other medical or surgical conditions?
3: I think that- uh, that's a good question, Jim. And. Uh, You know, I think uh, a thorough chart review can be very helpful in seeing if any other providers have had clinical concerns. As mentioned, the ORS is a very powerful tool to see uh, what kind of prescription opioids they've been prescribed uh, previously. Uh, You know, uh, many prescriptions with many different providers kind of is a red flag as far as maybe they have an opioid use disorder. And then uh, relying on the DSM-5 criteria uh, to really kind of think about their opioid use and whether or not it could meet criteria for a disorder I think would be a good place to start.
1: Well, Aaron, what about pregnant women? Can medication treatment be initiated during pregnancy?
3: Uh, Yes, Jim, actually it can
2: and it should be. Um, Both the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and American Society of Addiction Medicine recommend that pregnant women be offered and maintained on medications for opioid use disorder. Historically, we would think about utilizing methadone uh, for that population, however, buprenorphine has been utilized and is a wonderful option, especially for women who don't want to have to go daily to a methadone clinic in order to get their medication. Studies have shown um, that buprenorphine can be just as beneficial as methadone and actually even um, have a less effect for neonatal abstinence syndrome for the neonates who were born to moms uh, who were on that medication. Now, when utilizing this medication, oftentimes people are going to use the monoform uh, of buprenorphine for pregnant women just because that's been the uh, substance that's been studied. Um, However, there have been recent studies that show utilizing buprenorphine naloxone together is just as safe.
1: With the relaxation of the buprenorphine prescribing laws, I think that many primary care physicians are going to be... more willing to initiate buprenorphine in their outpatients, when should they be referring those patients to a dedicated opioid use disorder uh, center or a specialist?
2: You know, and I think that, you know, that all depends on the primary care provider's comfort level with their initiation strategies, how sick they might deem their patient who they're going to initiate the medication on. And if they've tried and failed from a buprenorphine initiation standpoint, maybe the next step instead of going to an opioid treatment program from a methadone standpoint is to Uh, send them to somebody who uh, prescribes buprenorphine more regularly and who is an addiction specialist who can utilize that medication and different strategies in order to get someone initiated and stabilized on that medication.
1: You specialize in treating adolescents with substance abuse disorders. What are the rules regarding parental notification and treatment? Uh,
2: That's a great question, and that is actually kind of state-dependent. So it's important to understand the laws where you live. Here in the state of Ohio, we know that um, minors are able to consent for screening and treatment of substance use disorder without parental notification. That actually includes medications for treatment of substance use disorder as well, which is different than other mental health considerations where adolescents can go and get treatment for those but not from a medication standpoint, a parent still has to sign off on that. Um, that being said, it's really important from an adolescent perspective and when treating that adolescent to try and utilize all of the support that they that teenager has in order to help them be safe while initiating on this medication. Also give that family member or support person uh, education on what to do in case of an overdose, have someone who is safe holding the medication and those things. So it's really a fine line to walk between allowing the adolescent to have confidentiality as well as making sure that that parent or support person knows that they need um, to be involved and help them with initiating this. I always tell all of my teenagers when I see them that if I'm concerned about the risk to your life, I will have to break our confidentiality and let your parent know that. And I let parents know that as well so that every everybody's on board with knowing our ultimate job is to keep that teen safe.
1: Well, how expensive are the medications used to treat opioid use disorder, and and are they typically covered by insurance?
2: You know, back when we first started using these medications, They were hard to get. They could be hard to get. Sometimes people would go to cash-only places in order to get their medication. Not all insurances covered the different formulations that were there, or they would only cover up to a certain dose. You would have to do a prior authorization every month. That's different now. Pretty much all insurances um, do cover the buprenorphine, naloxone or suboxone. Uh, sublingual tablet, as well as film formulation. Where we're seeing issues is potentially people who are trying to use higher doses of medication, so above 24 milligrams. That's often now requiring a prior authorization and can be a barrier to patients getting those medications. Um, However, from a payment standpoint, all insurances are usually covering it.
1: Luke, in the past, when a DEA X waiver was required to prescribe buprenorphine, even if the hospitalist or emergency medicine physician had an X waiver, they were pretty much... Are required to arrange follow-up in an outpatient setting with an addiction medicine specialist since a few primary care physicians had X waivers. Have you seen the new law change the way you're doing discharge planning for patients in whom you do initiate buprenorphine?
3: Well, thanks, Jim. That's a, a great question. And, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement uh, in the opioid, community, opioid treatment community at the moment about uh, the lifting of the X waiver and potential to... Broaden the scope of our treatment for these paci- this patient population. Um, I think uh, that you know tides are slow to shift, and so um, I, I think uh, over a longer period of time, hopefully we'll see that become more common practice. That your primary care physician could also be your medical home for your opioid treatment. Uh, but uh, at this time, I think there's no substitute still for a phone call to the primary care doc and say, hey, this is the patient. This is what uh, the treatment plan is. Uh, Are you uh, someone that would be comfortable prescribing this? Um, If so, great. Um, And if not, uh, you know, continue to refer to a a substance use treatment center, kind of like the old days.
1: Well, you and Aaron both mentioned that all patients should be prescribed naloxone. How is naloxone administered, and does a patient need a prescription?
3: Uh, One of the other uh, uh, exciting things here lately is that uh, naloxone is now available over the counter without a prescription in, in many pharmacies. So. Able to be attained by almost anyone, by anyone, hopefully, um, and it's typically uh, administered in a um, a nasal spray formulation. Uh, Another important point is that with the uh, current fentanyl that's out there, uh, the dose may need to be repeated. So having more than one dose available uh, is uh, important if possible.
1: Well, thanks, Luke. We're going to finish up with a couple final key points about buprenorphine. Erin?
2: Thanks, Jim. I just want to remember or remind everyone that while the opioid epidemic continues to change and we're seeing high-potency synthetic opioids, buprenorphine is still a safe and effective medication that can be used to help treat this chronic, um, chronic addiction. It's important to understand that we might have to use different initiation strategies in order to help someone get on this medication, but it can really save their lives.
3: And Luke. Um, I want to start out by thanking some members of our uh, OSU Edition medicine team that really were instrumental in helping with this presentation, Dr. Peggy Williams and Dr. Joe Estario, and then my lovely wife for really uh, helping to make the presentation look as excellent as, as it did. Um, for our inpatients, I think uh, we are still in the middle of an opioid epidemic, and the inpatient setting is a great opportunity to both identify, diagnose, Uh, and potentially treat uh, some of our patients um, to get them the the treatment that they need uh, to hopefully uh, improve people's quality of life and decrease mortality going forward.
1: Well, Aaron and Luke, thanks again for joining us today. For all of you viewing, don't forget that you can get American Board of Internal Medicine maintenance and certification points for viewing MedNet and then answering the post-test questions following the webcast. And join us next week when neurosurgeon Dr. Andrew Grossbach will be here to discuss common spine disorders. We'll see you then.